to Yo and Yo's podcast. We've had the privilege of advising Michigan businesses for over 95 years, and we want to share our knowledge with you, covering tax, accounting, technology, financial, and advisory topics relevant to you and your business. Yo and Yo's podcast is hosted by industry and subject matter experts, where we go beyond the beans. So if you want to stay in the know about business issues and trends that affect you, then keep listening because this is Everyday Business with Yo and Yo. Morning, everyone. My name is Tom O'Sullivan. I am a principal with Yo and Yo CPAs and part of our cannabis team. This is part one of our podcast. Joining me this morning is Alex Wilson, Senior Manager at Yo and Yo. First, thanks for having me. As Tom said, I'm a senior manager within the tax and consulting service lines within Yo and Yo. I will be the team leader for our cannabis efforts going forward. Tom and I discuss and kind of steer client opportunities and prospects as they come in as, as it relates to cannabis. Thanks, Alex. For the first podcast, we're going to kind of take a step back in history and talk about how cannabis became legal in Michigan when it became legal and kind of the ramifications of it becoming legal. So Alex, you want to start? Sure. And, you know, stepping back in time today, you can't drive down an expressway or, or go through a city without seeing some sort of provisioning center or a billboard saying, hey, next right, there's a mm-hmm. an operation that you can go to. And it seems like the last couple of years, as we've gained more momentum in the industry, it's impossible to not see it everywhere we look, whether it's an article, whether it's driving, whether we're talking about it, it seems to be top of mind on a lot. However, the legalization of marijuana within Michigan is not really that new. As a matter of fact, the first approval for legalization for related to caregivers was all the way back in 2008. And there was an eight or nine year period related to caregivers being able to grow and sell to recipients. With that process and updating it, there wasn't a, a formal tracking or as regulatory or as stringent of policies that had to be adhered to. So fast forward into the end of 2016, former Governor Snyder signed a series of three bills into law to create the kind of backbone for how to handle medical marijuana businesses. There was a, a year vetting period uh, where it was an open forum. And in September of 2017, that's actually when the doors opened and prospective businesses could start applying for these licenses. Now, at the inception, there are different license types that the governing bodies have created, specifically around retailers, processors, growers, secure transportation. So the folks that either deliver cannabis or cash to or from cannabis-related entities, and then your safety testing centers where samples need to go be tested for harmful materials to verify that the THC content within samples is within the parameters that the customer is looking to get. So if it says 28% THC, it's really within the boundaries of what's considered 28%. And I, I don't think people realize how strictly regulated cannabis is and that everything that's purchased is tested. I think that there's a misnomer that John growing it in his backyard and taking it to the provisioning center and then you're buying it and you're not really knowing what you have. But this industry is highly, highly regulated. And so I think that's one of the reasons it took a while for when these laws passed to be able to open your first centers. Back in this was just medical. Correct. So again, Correct. just medical. You, you 
you couldn't just off the street walk in and buy your cannabis. You had to- You had to be a qualified, qualified recipient. Yes, so you had to have your yes. medical card. That's a great point, Tom. I think you can almost think of it like the iceberg. Everyone at the surface thinks these things are popping up. It's going to be the wild, wild west. But everything that happened below the surface, the pre-qualifications that go into it, the yeah. background checks, if you own more than 10% of a company or a related entity, you are required to go through a formal background check to make sure that you're a qualified owner or affiliated with a qualified owner of a cannabis-related entity. On the surface, again, it looks like these things are popping up left and right, but there is a lot of resources, a lot of capital needed, and a lot of processes, policies that are being adhered to as these things are popping up. So we've got the medical. It's been a while since you were medical was legal. It kind of started and the state took their time a bit to get these things and what they think is get it right. Then the rec came in, right? Yes. We basically went an entire year of medical. There was legislation on the board that was kicked through towards the end of uh, 2018. Michigan voters approved to legalize, tax, and regulate an adult use cannabis. From that process, it mirrored the medical to a point. However, there are some differences between, you know, whether it be on the taxation side, whether it be on the legalization side, restrictions, things like that that are different. For example, there's an excise tax of 10% on adult use purchases that's not on medical use. And that's, you know, part of that is one of the reasons we see medical licensees and medical shops reducing because the AU, the adult use side, there's more opportunities in the adult use. While you're paying more tax, you're playing to a larger audience. You don't have to have your medical card. As long as you're of legal age, you can go in and pay for cannabis-related products. So the adult use has caught up. And in, in 2019, it went through its vetting process where folks were able to get in line, get their applications, get their licensing pre-qualified. January of 2020, the doors open for folks to be able to line up and purchase adult use or recreational marijuana. And Tom, when that happened, it was a whole new world. It was uh, like uh, Christmas again in January. It was and, like uh, Black Friday. Uh, that's right. Where you just see that's right. People were waiting in line hours and it's hours and hours campouts. Yes. Uh, for yes. for this type of activity. So throughout 2020, there was the interplay between medical and adult use. From that perspective, and the Marijuana Regulatory Agency, or the MRA, which is Michigan's governing body that drives policy change and compliance with cannabis-related entities, they have been refining a process for, okay, we have this federally illegal substance that we are allowing at the state level. We've legalized it, as a lot of states now have. I believe the count is up to 36 states now have mm -hmm. either accepted, adopted, or have introduced legislation. And what the MRA is doing is coming up with a system of vetting out that there's none of the old stigma uh, of cannabis-related activities. So it's how can we track everything from seed to sale? So, and even backing up a step further, how can we make sure the folks that want to step into the cannabis industry are qualified individuals to do that. Yes. And it goes through that background process, the pre-qualifications, you have capital attestation reports that you have to submit to the state basically saying if you're going for a certain license type, you have to have an amount of capital that you can prove you have before they issue it. They're not going to issue a license if you have $50 in a bank account. They're not going to do that. 
They need to make sure you have the resources to get this off because it is a very capital heavy, resource heavy industry on the front end. Obviously, there's opportunities to make a great deal of money with this, with proper planning, but up front before everything and doors open, there is a lot of capital requirements to check boxes and obtain proper licensing. You mentioned it's what's been happening behind the scenes. It's yeah. not just apply for a license, open the door and start selling cannabis. It doesn't work that way. Can you, Alex, talk about the different types of licenses? I don't think people realize all the things. You kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier of a few of them, but can you kind of go into what types of licenses there are out there, maybe the capital requirements to obtain one of those licenses? The most prevalent license type we see is what's called a provisioning center license, which is a fancy term for a retailer or dispensary location. In order to the capitalization requirements for this license type at this point are 300,000. So whether it's bank accounts, liquid assets, you can use a certain percentage of non-liquid assets to build into net worth. So real estate holdings or business interests can possibly count. Most folks use basically cash or the ability to obtain loans or lines of credit for that information. So probably the most prevalent has been the provisioning center. Second, there's a processing license, which is where the cannabis is converted or flour is packaged into pre-rolls, items that you can essentially smoke, or it can be converted into the oils, the gummies, the edibles, the chocolates, what have you. That license type also has a $300,000 threshold to prove. The third kind of common license we see, there are actually three subsets for this type are grower licenses, and there's class A, B, and C which will dictate based on what class, how many plants you're authorized to grow. So a class A grow is the smallest of that license type and that has $150,000 capitalization requirement. Class B has a 300,000 and class C is up to half a million dollars uh, in terms of the capital requirements for that. Those are kind of the three standards that we see across the board. That's, you know, we call it vertical integration. If you have your grow operation, a processing operation, and a retail operation, you kind of stack it on top of each other. And the, the term in the industry is that vertical integration. The two license types that are kind of outsider or ancillary in nature would be your secure transporter, which would be an entity that is going to securely transport either cannabis products from a grow to a processor, a processor to a retailer, or they're taking cash. A lot of these secure transporters, because it's such a cash intensive business, they have the armored vehicles or the secured vehicles, they will take the amounts of cash and deposit it into a bank. I should say that also has a $200,000 capital requirement. The final is a safety compliance facility, and that's where they're doing that testing. And a lot of things they're testing for heavy metals, harmful chemicals within samples, or are we right in terms of the content of THC, uh, the potency that we're saying, that we're branding it as, does it fall within those parameters? And it, Tom touched on it earlier, a lot of people don't realize the stringent testing policies that have to go through. There have been a couple articles that have hit the news over the last couple months where you know, fairly sizable recalls, which puts folks in an unusual situation because of how new cannabis insurance and things like that are. How do we do that? Inventory shortages at that point, if you had enough that had to be recalled and essentially destroyed. 
those are the five main license types. Now there's legislation to potentially sub out some of these um, licensing for micro businesses and possibly further expand on grow classes, but nothing's been formally introduced to this mm-hmm. point. There's a few other outside license types. There's the micro business, yes. as you mentioned. There's the event. So you could get a license to have a cannabis event where people would come and yeah, think think <laughs> festivals. Think yeah. a festival for that, right. or if you're going to have a pop up event over a weekend, similar right. to how breweries sometimes do it. Yeah, uh, with a special event where they might have an outside place that they do it. It's a similar situation. Then yeah. there's also the essentially a marijuana bar. Yes, where yes. you can purchase marijuana and essentially smoke it within the confines of of a business. I believe Ann Arbor has. I believe they do a, too. a couple of those that are open. Those are fewer and farther in between. Right. We don't see those pop up a great deal. Obviously with the pandemic, we're not seeing very many of the event licenses going out just because you can't have crowds like that. I think that might take off a little bit more as summers open up and opportunities mm-hmm. open up for, for larger gatherings. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, uh, it, it's come a long way from 2008 when Someone could be a caregiver, quote unquote, and grow it in their backyard and then sell it to medical patients without any real regulation, without any real government interference, and come all the way to all these different license types, all these regulations, all these capitalization, and and who knows where it's going to go from here. We have been talking that Michigan is a state where there's an unlimited number of licenses. There's restrictions in terms of municipalities being able to opt out of the law. So the state left it to local municipalities to be able to say, we don't want that type of business in our jurisdiction and they can opt out. So that is obviously a restriction. There's also restrictions in terms of how close it can be to a church, a school, Another facility. Another facility. But other than that, it's unlimited in the number of licenses. That's absolutely correct. And it it comes down to local ordinances in terms of zoning. Can you construct a building or do selling there? The other thing is if you were to open up in a plaza that has co-tenants in there, you are required to make sure that that co-tenant doesn't have something in their agreement with the landlord that no entity shall be in this plaza or this strip mall, whatever it ends up being, that's operating with something that's considered illegal at the federal. It's not as likely that that's there, but it's a consideration that you have. There are different ways where you have to measure proximity between certain townships, say it's from lot line to lot line. Sometimes they'll even let you go in and say, okay, if you're close enough, leave the last 10 feet of the building vacant, and then you meet the thousand foot requirement for where it's at. And again, no cap on the state of Michigan issued licenses in total for cannabis related entities. It does come down to the localities that determine, okay, we're going to legalize this within our township or within our our county, depending on what the vote is for. They though, the locality can limit, we're only going to issue five licenses of of this type, 10 of this and and five of this. And then it becomes an application process where they're reviewing everyone because these localities, this is such a new thing. They only want the companies they feel are the most qualified to get those licenses. And I just heard, and we had had a training that Tom and I attended the other day, and I can't remember who the township was, 
it was somewhere around Metro Detroit, there were 39 applicants for two licenses. So there's going to be 37 very unhappy people because mm-hmm. they've went through this formal process of being pre-qualified, getting in line, and 37 people are not getting the license. So it, it's not to say they can't expand licenses. A lot of townships are dipping their toes into it, having a very low threshold of licenses so they can control it, make sure it's operating as they anticipated. I think they'll open it up. It's a it's a massive revenue source for the state of Michigan, which trickles down to schools and roads and, and things of that nature. So I do see it as we get a better handle on how this is being regulated, how townships can regulate. I think we'll see some expansion. Mm-hmm. And we've spent a lot of time talking about the legalization of it in Michigan. I want you to touch a little bit on the fact that it's still federally illegal and still considered a Schedule One drug from the U.S. government, from the federal standpoint, it's not legal. How does that affect businesses in Michigan, people in Michigan? Can I buy some pot and drive over to Ohio legally and ingest it there just because I bought it legally in Michigan? How how does the fact that it's federally illegal affect people? The federal transportation of these drugs across state lines is something that's subject to a lot of debate. So if you are pulled over in a state that has not legalized it and you have that, that's possession of marijuana from that perspective. The fact that the feds classify this as a schedule one drug at this point, it taxpayers and folks should be aware that there are quite a bit of penalties associated with this because there are very few things that you can qualify as a deduction at certain levels. So it becomes a very high taxing on top of the excise taxes, on top of the sales taxes that you're paying. In terms of you have to be very careful if you're vacationing in Michigan or another state that's legal and your state that you're originally from, or if you're passing through states, and for whatever reason you're pulled over or come into contact with the law, if it's illegal in that state or you know at the federal level, if it's, it's obviously still illegal, there are ramifications for that. And you can't fly with it. And you cannot fly with cannabis to this point, no. That's right. Talk a little bit about uh, the other aspect of the banking. You mentioned it, that it's a heavily cash-intensive business. Why is that? So for the first few years and as medical was introduced in in 2016 and 17 and kind of as it really took off in 2018 and 19, there were very, very few financial institutions that would allow banking for cannabis related. Any bank that is FDIC insured up to that point was not allowing it because it's a federal insurance program. It's illegal federally, so you could potentially do that. So you had to look at more state chartered banks and credit unions were starting to take it because there were a little bit different guidelines they could follow. Fast forward to 2021, we do see banking becoming more and more prevalent in terms of more options for new businesses to do their banking with. However, note of caution, there are usually pretty steep fees charged with doing that because it is obviously a cash intensive business. You might be taking a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars to the bank at one point. Someone has to count it. So a lot of times, you might see a, a certain percentage of the deposit that's charged for a banking fee, or there could be something a cleaning fee or accounting fee associated with it. So it is something where, as we watch the needle in terms of federal banking and and opening up more. Uh, opportunities for banks to get into the cannabis industry with less restrictions and, and being tied to federal rules. 
Right now, it is fairly limited in terms of the institutions that have kind of dove into it. And it's something you very much so want to make sure. Some banks require you to have armored vehicles take it. Some you can still drive in. It depends on where you're at and kind of what that lender's specifications are. And we also should mention the requirement to report cash deposits of more than $10,000 in cash. Correct. There's that out there also. So we have this new industry in Michigan, legalized cannabis for adult use. If you've got a client who says, hey, Alex, I'm thinking of getting into it. I understand the history of it. Maybe I want to start with a grower's license. Come to you. What are you saying to the client? What are the important things that they they should be looking at and thinking about before they even step foot into this industry? That's a great question. And it's something that we're seeing our clients have the opportunity where they're starting to become curious and want to explore options of getting into cannabis. I think it, the first thing that I that I approach potential candidates for that would be to make sure they know of all the things that happen behind the scenes. Yes, you can read the legislation or read the uh, MRA site for how it actually happens, but there is a lot that goes into the pre-qualifications, having those background checks. If you're going to go into business with partners, they're all going to have to have their background checks performed then going through the capitalization agreements in terms of getting your license. Even before that, you need to know where you're potentially going to try to be prequaled in. Are there remaining licenses? Are there, if you're doing a grow, do you have a spot you can actually grow this in? Township lines are not square. So you might live within a township and your farm field across the road or wherever you're going to grow or, or put a greenhouse, that could be in township B that hasn't passed this. Well, you're not growing that stuff there. So there are very strict rules, and obviously you want to make sure you have all your ducks in a row, have went through that process. The other thing I would say is there is a lot of capital required up front. That report that you furnish to the state saying, I have this amount of liquid net worth that I can use, you're going to have to dip into that. And obviously anyone starting a business knows they have to spend cash to grow a business, but it is fairly intensive up front and it happens very quickly. So having a great business plan or a, a model to follow is paramount. So a guy who was a good grower in high school who everyone went to to buy their bag isn't necessarily going to be able to just step into the state and walk in and say, hey, I want a license. I, I want to grow it. And everyone at my high school loved it. And I'm going to make a million bucks. He's not necessarily the way that you should get into it. It is a, as we've said, highly regulated industry, a business. And you really need to know what you're doing and come with a solid business plan to be able to make money. There is potential to make a good living, to make a lot of money in this brand new industry. I mean, think about it. We're in an era where we've started a whole new industry. I mean, in the history of the United States, how many brand new industries really have been started like this? And and we're at the beginning of this. So it's an exciting thing to be a part of. Highly regulated, though. If you think you're just going to walk in because uh, you grew some great stuff in high school and be able to make a million bucks, it's not necessarily the way to go. So we've taken a dive into the history of how it became legal in Michigan and touched on the different aspects of getting a license, the different aspects of starting a business. I think definitely the one thing we should take away from this is if you are interested in getting into this business, it can be very lucrative, but it's highly regulated and really you need professionals who this isn't their first rodeo. 
that know what they're doing, that know how to guide you in terms of starting the business and being successful at it. And I would say that's exactly correct, Tom. I guess my parting shot here would be find your team early. You need a solid CPA. You need a solid attorney. If you can find a banking institution ahead of time that's going to do it, put yourself on their radar so they know it's coming. And the other thing that I would say is you need to know the township or the location that you're looking to operate in because you don't want to go through all of this where you go through background check and prove yourself out and then there's no remaining licenses in that area. So that would be my parting shot. The earlier you can have a formal team to work with, the higher likelihood of, of less hiccups and, and less headaches in starting this up because there is a lot of compliance up front in order to do this. I agree 100%. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate your time. If anyone has any questions or is thinking about getting into the cannabis business, we would be happy to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in to Yo and Yo's Everyday Business Podcast. Yo and Yo's podcast can be listened to on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and of course, our website. Please subscribe, rate, and review. For more business insights, visit our resource center at yoandyo.com and be sure to subscribe to our newsletters. We'll talk to you next time on Yo and Yo's Everyday Business Podcast. The information provided in this podcast is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the podcast reflect the views of the speakers. This podcast does not constitute tax, accounting, legal, or other business advice or an advisor-client relationship. Before making any decision or taking action, you should consult with a professional regarding your specific circumstances.